Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jara, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have Sue. Hi, everybody. And Grace. What up, nerds? And our main topic today is, uh, this is going to be our part two of our series of episodes on women villains. Our first one was called The Baddest Women in the Universe, part one, if you want to take a look at that. Also, uh, unfortunately, Andy has been felled by the worst villain of all, which is this cold that's been going around. So regrets from Andy. But before we get into that, we have some of our regular housekeeping. Um, so we'll start off, as usual, mentioning that our show is 100% listener supported through your donations at Patreon. It helps us keep the show going, pays for our audio and web hosting, getting out to conventions to do reporting, promoting the show to more people. So thanks for your support. And if you're not yet supporting us and are able to hop on over to patreon.com slash women at warp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash women at warp. You can also help people find our podcast by leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you look at your podcasts. Um, ratings and reviews help our podcast be discovered by more people. Uh, did you have any other housekeeping items? Yes, by the time that this episode is released, you should also be able to find us on Spotify. That's a new podcast destination, and we everything's been submitted. We're just waiting for it to go live, and that should happen by this publication. So, uh, women villains. Um, as I mentioned, we already did a part one in which we talked about Locira from the original series episode, That Which Survives. We also talked about Lursa and Bator, Kai Wynn. Seska, and Tara, the Andorian from the Enterprise episode, Ceasefire. We have also talked substantially about uh, the Romulan commander uh, when we talked about uh, our badass Romulan women. We also talked about Sela in that episode. Uh, we've talked about Elan of Traeus, Dila, Intendant Kira, Kayla from the Enterprise episode Two Days and Two Nights in our Archer's Love Interests app. So... Um, we're not going to be putting those ones as high priorities for today. And, um, we are also not going to finish covering villains today. Uh, so oh, we have- Oh, hell a- no. <laughs> no. Um, while, you know, probably if we were going to do Star Trek's male villains, this would be like a 15 part episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to get to at least three parts with this series. So, uh, we're just going to try and, you know, do justice to, uh, the next five or six ones on our list and we'll see how we get. Because we've got no shortage of opinions. And in the future, (laughs) we may even wrap back around and cover somebody in a full episode that we've talked about on one of these. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a few of them um, that are, I would say, heavy hitters, uh, not one-off characters, and uh, they will warrant further discussion in the future. But for now, let's start with a one-off, um, although a fun one, I think, um, who is Nona from the original series episode, A Private Little War. Nona has amazing fashion. Can we yeah. start oh, right man. there? She clearly, like, killed and skinned a Muppet to make her vest. As and is tradition in Star Trek. She's wearing, like, high water bell bottoms? Like, I don't even yep. know. It's, it's amazing. It's definitely a look. But yeah, she's got, like, the high-waisted... Is it high-waisted, though, if you can see her belly button? It's a level of high-waisted. There are varying degrees of wastage. It's definitely an interesting waistband, I'll give you that. Yeah, and the orange Muppet crop top vest 
plus uh-huh. macrame necklace. <laughs> it's so good. Overall, it, it is most definitely a look. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't remember, this is the Vietnam War allegory episode where the hill people are fighting the village people. And they're not called that, but it's more fun to call them <laughs> the village people. Um, and uh, the Klingons have given the village people guns. And the hill people are just stuck with basically just like rocks and shit. And Nona wants to steal phasers from Kirk and McCoy. So she cures Kirk from Mugatu poison with a uh, healing potion and belly dance. The healing power of dance, don't yeah. you know? What else does she do? What, um, what were some of your uh, impressions on her strategy for this episode and her motivations? Well, there is definitely the line where she says, In all the land, how many are there? Men seek us out because through us they become great leaders. Oh, wow. Right off the bat, she can't be a leader herself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that that was sort of cool because you find out that her people are experts in herbal medicine. And I thought it was neat to show uh, women having immense healing and almost magical healing powers. Hmm. Even if the relationship between her and her husband, the sort of chief of the hill people um is you know i wouldn't say she's progressive uh, like feminist icon not really but um that'd be a bit of a stretch so in this episode um kirk and mccoy are with the hill people and kirk's basically just trying to decide whether to give them advanced weapons so that they can fight the klingon armed village people and now I'm picturing the band the village people, but with Klingon arms. And <laughs> I'm just picturing Klingon village people, and it's pretty amazing. Uh, fan art? Can I have some fan art? In the Navy! You, sir, are you eating your guck? I said, you, sir, <laughs> let's go running amok. I said, I don't know. We'll, we'll keep working on this. <laughs> There's and fan art. Yes. <gasps> I found it. Yes. Okay, awesome. We will put it in the show notes. <laughs> but I thought one thing that was interesting is often in original series, the uh, women, and particularly the women antagonists, are like fa- fairly one-dimensional. But she actually kind of has a legit reason for doing what she's doing, where her people that she's living with, the Hill people, are getting killed by the guys with guns, and... Her husband is just like, they'll learn to be peaceful at some point. We can't try and kill them back. We don't really need advanced weapons to defend ourselves. So you can kind of get where she's coming from. Yeah. Can't say I totally disagree with her. Um, And then she also has drugs that she uses to make men sort of addled and submissive. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is very love potion-y. Apparently that was put in place because early scripts described her as uh, physically overpowering Kirk at the point where she sort of steals the phaser from him. And uh, Robert Justman said that Bill Shatner won't like the scene description about Nona being nearly as strong as he is. Wow. So they added in the drugs to give her a way to basic to uh, subdue him without punching him. Well, also you can also uh, see that as part of the Vietnam allegory there. There's still a lot of conspiracy theories going around about American troops and being given uh, potable potable what mm. have you to get them to fight more. Uh, good point. 
Hmm. Um, now I'm just having Jacob's ladder flashbacks. Grace, did you want to read the comment from Brianna on our Facebook page? Because I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. On listing her as one of the villains we were going to be talking about, Brianna said, Interesting. I don't know if I ever thought of Nona as an antagonist, just a protagonist with different motives and methods. There are many female characters like that in TOS. I think in my mind, I always viewed Nona as sacrificing herself there at the end with the intention of tricking them into taking her back to the camp and then killing as many as she could. I don't think I ever considered what she that she was really switching sides in the war. True, she manipulated the men with her magic, but I don't know if I ever considered her a villain. Which is definitely fair, and also one of the best signs you can have that your antagonist is pretty well rounded out, or at least sufficiently interesting and not just mustache twirling is that they actually have a motivation that you can say yeah i see it yeah i think that's true but i think that um for me after reading the comment i was paying more attention when i rewatched it and if you know the music that they use whenever she's doing things it's like beware this lady beware this lady (laughs) (laughs) so proactive um, women are dangerous don't you know Yeah, and it's, you know, she's trying to talk her husband into doing things that Kirk and McCoy wouldn't approve of. Well, there's a lot of stereotypes surrounding Mm. her actions, right? She's, she's the mystical manipulative witch who, even though she's, she's using a root or a potion to do it, like can bring yep. men to their knees with her sexual wiles. Mm-hmm. Which is especially you know. funny considering Nancy Kovac uh, had previously been in Jason and the Argonauts as Medea, where that's kind of her shtick as well. Mm-hmm. She is beautiful and seductive with her dancey, fancy ways and body paint, because apparently that was really big in ancient Greece. I had no idea. Well, and she's very out of place among the hill people yeah. because of her dark hair mm-hmm. and also, you know, being the only woman. Yeah. It's never easy being the token woman, is it? No. (laughs) Well, and she, so yeah, she falls definitely into this trope of what um, Anita Sarkeesian calls the evil evil demon seductress, um, but is also, you know, pretty similar to a vamp or a black widow trope, who is a woman who uses seductive wiles to sway moral men for evil purposes and occasionally to kill them. She doesn't go quite that far, but... um, I also was quite bothered by the scene, regardless of whether she's trying to trick them or not, where she goes to, like, offer the phasers to the other camp, and they basically all just kind of grab her, and, like, it seems like they're going to rape her. Yeah. And then they just stab her when they think that she's deceived them. Like, oh, she tricked us, let's stab her, and it's like, you are going to rape her, so I don't know that you have the moral high ground here. And then it was, yeah, she was just very disposable. It was like an e- a beautiful woman turned out to be evil, and then she gets killed, and it was basically fine, because she deserved it. Jeez. I mean, her husband, to be fair, is like, no, I'm going to go off and kill all these guys now. So it's not like everyone was just like, oh, well, but... I know, but how many of these stories do we have where we can say an interesting woman character was just kind of inauspiciously killed off and it was like well she deserved it so we're done here Mm -hmm. i mean she's literally being thrown from guy to guy in that scene yeah not not fantastic yeah yeah i mean it actually in some ways it goes to show you know that beyond the the allegory of the vietnam war that like 
Beyond the people who were actually in the armies being given arms by both sides of the war, there were a lot of other people who were drawn in and impacted. And oh, um, those stories often don't get told very well. Okay, so another example I think that is on a similar sort of trope path is Ardra from The Next Generation's Devil's Do. <laughs> this episode is ridiculous. This episode is bonkers. But I kind of love it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where you're just like, this is very, very silly. But it feels like the episode is aware of how silly it is. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it wasn't. It was originally one of the uh, Star Trek like seventies reboot scripts that they polished off because they went, "Oh crap, we don't have any scripts." That that very clear makes complete sense because you watch it and you're like, "This is this is season four? Yeah, <laughs> this is late season four? Because this is some nineteen sixties level shenanigans here, which makes it feel like a season one or two episode." Uh, so this is the one where Ardra's the con woman who makes people think she's the devil, just in case anyone didn't remember. That old chestnut, you go into a town, convince them you're actually the devil, take what you will, and then just bugger off. But can we talk about this town for a second, or this colony? <laughs> what kind of colony is like, we really don't have anything to lose, and we believe in the devil. So yeah, sure, let's make a deal with the devil, quite literally. That we'll have prosperity for a thousand years, and then our descendants can deal with what happens. Um, <laughs> isn't that like how we're like, hey, um, I can just use all of the fossil fuels I want. Yeah, I, was- I don't have anything to lose. And <laughs> yeah, except that those people don't believe there's actually a consequence coming up. Well, it's not a consequence that they have to deal with, so what's the point? They're like, she is a real devil, but whatever, we won't even have met those kids. They're not our deal, so. Um, so originally in the script, this character was a played by a guy, um, but uh, Michael P- Piller said he changed it for fun um, because they were the script was just having trouble, like it was too wacky um, or the serious stuff wasn't working, and apparently this made it better. I think because it enabled the evil demon seductress vampy Black Widowy tropes. It's fun that it's for fun is jumping from one trope to another. <laughs> To make it more believable, apparently. Well, it adds that layer with Picard, right? Yeah. Even though it's yeah. a little bit weird and, like, extra weird and very clear she can't read his mind when she turns into Deanna. Yeah, that was super creepy. Uncomfortable. Wrong one, sweetie. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of, you know, the time when uh, Q is trying to give people things that they want and they're always like no it's the same deal like they're yeah. like no yeah, pretty much like, <laughs> i will never you don't know me but she tries to make a deal for picard which is part of the trope too that like the woman can't let the man get away kind of thing because even though they are all powerful or very powerful they're incomplete without mm-hmm. being able to dominate a man we could rule together or you could rule by yourself because you're supposedly all powerful I want your heart, your mind, your soul, and I want you to give them to me without resistance. Mm. I feel like that's our real indicator of, nah, she's not the devil. The devil would be a strong, independent woman who don't need no man. Exactly. Or at least as far as these male writers are concerned. (laughs) Um, I do really 
like the costumes in this episode, like especially her awesome, the outfit she wears when she appears in Picard's quarters and she's in that sort of like sheer Tina Turner bodysuit wig combo with the giant earrings. That thing is super sheer. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever realized that before this rewatch, but... Production-wise, this episode definitely leans into the the camp factor, and it's probably for the best oh, yeah. that it does. It's really fun, actually, and when she uh, beams Picard down to the planet in his bathrobe, that's also pretty great. <laughs> I mean, uh... Uh, you know, I'm not saying that that is, like, a good or positive or progressive thing that she's, like, trying to seduce Picard. It's very clearly, like, a oh, no. very tired and worn trope. Um, and, you know, when we see the same thing in Voyager with Q and Janeway, like, it's super gross. And I found it super mm-hmm. gross when yeah. she was she turned into Deanna. Although I th- I think it's, like, less menacing or super icky because you know that, you know, she's just a sort of con woman and she really isn't omnipotent. Just sleazy. And clever. She's very clever. There is a, there's a fine line between sleazy and clever that she seems to walk pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Slever, if you will. Yeah, not just clever, like, really smart yeah. to come up with yeah. this stuff. I am would sort of expect her to have, like, how does she know about this contract? Is she an anthropologist who came yeah. across it? Yeah, did she have... Did she have this whole devil-themed scheme worked up for years and she just had to track down the right hillbilly civilization that would buy it? Because if so, that is definitely commitment to a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, she almost fools Data, so that's pretty good. Well, there, there, that, there's definitely a couple blind spots for Data, culturally speaking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I do like that she unnerves Worf. Yes. You gotta respect any woman who unnerves Worf. Although that does sound like a lot of women. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, yeah. Um, I think the actress Marta Dubois does a good job. Um, She she owns all the the what were you saying? Sleazy cleverness, cleverness, cleverness. She owns the slever. Slever. (laughs) Ardra, pretty smart con woman. Our next one on our list is another con woman who is Dalla from the Voyager episode Live Fast and Prosper. These Voyager crew members sure get like misrepresented a whole lot in seven years. Yeah. That feels very telling. (laughs) Between future museums and con women and sketchy hollow programs. (laughs) Look like the Delta Quadrant hasn't seen a lot new, and just, everyone just wants to cosplay them. <laughs> I did. I thought that was really clever, though. I know we haven't described this episode yet, but that, like, the costumes for the, the con people are off just enough. Like, the pips are giant, yeah. and the con badges are clearly made out of, like, shiny paper cardboard, and also giant, and the, the collars aren't quite right on the uniforms. They're a little bit oversized. Like, nice touch. Yeah, this is the one where uh, Dala is the leader of these this group of three con people. And uh, not to be confused with people who go to conventions. And- Those are con goers. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, con con persons, con aliens <laughs> um, of the Delta Quadrant. And uh, they are impersonating Janeway, Chakotay, and Tuvok. And basically ripping off other people. And it's kind of awesome. I actually, I mean, there's 
a lot of I think I think there's unnecessary dumb filler in this episode in the whole like stuff that Kirk oh, and or yeah. uh, Kirk Neelix and Paris um trying to pull minor cons on other people on the crew but why I really enjoyed the um performance from the uh particularly the the actress who played Janeway and Tuvok the guy who plays Tuvok who's like I'm really committed to my character He's a method actor. He really wants to get inside Tuvok's very angry yeah. head. I think it's kind of clever how they set this up. Um, I'm reading a book right now about H.H. H. Holmes, the, the serial killer in Chicago yeah. in the 1890s. And like, this is the sort of thing he did, not the murder part, but <laughs> that, you know, he'd go out and take loans or buy, uh, materials and then just not pay. Mm-hmm. And direct them to another person or a person that didn't exist. And then when somebody came after him, like, charm them away so they'd just go away laughing at a joke. Mm -hmm. It definitely makes sense that in a big universe that would be consistent, that there are people who know how to take advantage of other people. Yeah, and um, they borrow just enough of the information about the Federation's principles to sound sort of like a mockery of... Voyager, like it's kind of po- poking fun at how good the Federation is. Mm-hmm. Um, and both in that and then also in the fact that Dala, um, who's played by Caitlin Hopkins, who also played, uh, Kalana, the woman Vorta in the ship. Oh, no way. Yeah. So, um, you know, a very different role for her. And, uh, but, you know, they poke fun sort of at her wig. Um, so poking fun at the whole, you know, how Janeway's hair always has to be fabulous. And, um, and then how Dala and her, uh, comrades, uh, trick Paris and Neelix by pretending to be monks or, uh, clerics that are helping orphans. Always <sighs> the orphans. And basically flattering them. 80% of the time in TV, if you hear someone talking about orphans, it's a con, man. <laughs> Don't believe anyone who talks about orphans ever. I also like that, you know, she doesn't just take the road out that Neelix offers her. She's too committed to being a con person and not... Well, she's convinced she's also being conned, right? Yes. Yeah. She can't trust anyone else. Or maybe she thinks she's in it for a longer, bigger con? Maybe. Or she also mm. just doesn't want to have a life without profit off others. That's harsh. So they're really the Delta Quadrant equivalent of the Ferengi. Kind of. <laughs> they, I mean, yeah, yeah, kind of. Except for that one time when the Ferengi were the Delta Quadrant equivalent of the Ferengi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they were lazier, though. These guys are more, they're more like TNG Ferengi. They're more conniving and motivated. They've got hustle, and you got to respect that. Yeah. <laughs> And they have their, like, little, their freighter that's they call the Delta Flyer. Again, they've really committed to this bit. I do like that they don't find out right away, but I kind of would have liked to see them try and pull more cons. Because we only recently really see one that's sort of successful. It would have been, like, fun if at the end a whole bunch of people showed up that had all been conned. And then Voyager would be like, crap. Or even if they sprinkled one in a couple episodes from now. Yeah. You sold us all these leaky canoes. Damn you, Voyager. <laughs> all right. So two con women. That was entertaining, at least. I I've, I don't think Della's quite as compelling as Ardra, but I think it's just that the whole episode isn't maybe as compelling because it's not all as 
maybe it's not as coherent. <laughs> Definitely doesn't really seem to have as much to say. Yeah, it's, def- it's a lighter one. Now we've covered a few one-offs. We have a heavy hitter that we want to talk about. A long con villain, if you will. Yes. She has also a lot of little cons, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Helps that she can change bodies, change shapes. We are, of course, talking about the female changeling, Convenient, played yeah. by Salome Jens in Deep Space Nine. Still bugged she doesn't have a name. I'm st- I'm just bugged she has a gender. That feels unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true, isn't it? Why would why would they need one? That seems like such a solid concept. So a lot of people actually raised this in our comments. So I think we should talk about it a little bit. People raised like, why does she have a gender? What the heck is the deal? Are they transgender? Are they pangender? Um, why would it matter? Why does Odo even have a gender? We will do an episode where we talk about this as a more thematic thing across Star Trek, because this is also true of androids, of um, other, um, you know, the cogenitors. Like, there's a bunch of species where the idea of gender fluidity is sort of thrown around, but, like, never really well, well, rarely well addressed. Um, But, yeah. yeah, um, Thoughts on this in terms of the female changeling? I would think that the, the founders, the changelings, are agender. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for Odo, right, it's nature versus nurture, right? He's mm-hmm. in this place where he's the only one of his kind that he knows of, and he sees, like we do, the gender binary everywhere in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And he just, he talks about it at different points, like his choices. Mm-hmm. And he chose to appear as human as he can, even though he can't get ears right. Um, or as Bajoran as he can. Right. Because he modeled himself off Dr. Mora. Who we also establish he is kind of aping the hairdo of. So it really pisses me off when the founders who are out in, out in the deep space and they've all got that same freaking hairdo. <laughs> that just annoys me. So basically he he made a choice. And I mean, for actual people, it's not a choice. It is how you are. But for Odo, he, he made a choice, and his choice was, I'm going to present this way, and I'm going to use these pronouns, and I'm going to be male. But, I mean, for, for I guess the female changeling did the same thing. The question is, is, is she doing that just when she's interacting with Odo and the members of the Federation? Is that some kind of plan to her? Because it feels like presentation would be part of... They're kind of tricks of the trade as shapeshifters. Well, she does that with the, I mean, she's always appears like that with the Dominion people as well. Um, so it wouldn't just be the Federation, but it's possible that that's, that's right. you know, once she meets Odo and tries to mimic how he looks, that she's just decides this is how I'm always going to appear with solids. This is my solid look. Well, when we first see the Great Link as well, I think we see a lot of different changelings take solid form in the background Mm -hmm. and there are men and women from visual cues anyway Mm -hmm. um so it's maybe they make a choice once maybe they do have gender maybe it changes every time yeah i mean i think with odo that we never hear that he made a conscious choice so you know he models himself after dr Moore. it could also just be that that was the way that he felt because that was what he grew up seeing and that's how mm-hmm. he chose, like, he modeled himself, but he he didn't, you know, turn 
an age. It wasn't like lol, where Dr. Morris said one day, okay, do you want to be a boy or a girl? But I, I think with uh, the female changeling, it's presented as, or at least, I don't know, I always assumed that it was supposed to be manipulative, that she was trying to manipulate Odo, because from the very beginning, she learns that Odo's attracted to Kira. So she mm-hmm. infers a sexual orientation, and certainly during the occupation of Deep Space Nine, exploits his sexual attraction, as well as his curiosity about the link. Rude. And I mean, Heart of Stone as well. Like she, she learns a lot about his like attraction and love for Kira. Um, So she's taking that form because of the way that I guess like humans are socialized. Um, The rest of us are socialized that you would see that as, you know, a more acceptable partnership because, as we pointed out in past episodes in Star Trek until very recently, everyone's straight in space. <laughs> Somehow heteronormativity is universal. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it did. It does feel very heteronormative that they even have mm-hmm. the female changeling who shows up to try to convince Odo and the whole time is, it's like sort of a weird love triangle with Kira. Yeah. That said, it is pretty cool that the sort of de facto leader that we get for this really big and powerful uh, force in the Gamma Quadrant is a woman. That Mm -hmm. is pretty cool. Yeah, and she's definitely uh, one of the most uh, regularly occurring, memorable, and nuanced women villains in Star Trek. Put her probably Mm -hmm. in the top, I think, top three or four, uh, along with the the Borg Queen and Kai Wynn. So, yeah. Two on DS9. Yeah. Good point. Although, really, DS9 is the first Trek show where we had a villain recurring a lot. I mean, I know some of the the Klingons would return in TOS. And whether you want to consider Q a villain or not is up to you. But, like, long, arced seasons of storylines where with these villains returning because of the way that they place the show. Mm. Right. So when we first meet the female founder, the female changeling, uh, is in the search, uh, part two. I, we might meet her in part one, but, um, part two is, uh, where she's talking with Odo and it's sort of explaining more about who their people are. And it's interesting because I honestly didn't even remember this part at the beginning of, um, thinking about this character. Because it doesn't get brought up a lot more, but she talks about how the founders went and explored the galaxy in peace, quote, but too often we were met with suspicion, hatred, and violence. She says, the solids feared our metamorphic abilities, so we were beaten, hunted, and killed. Finally, we arrived here, and here, safe in our isolation, we made our home. And um, she defends to Odo that... um, so that's that's why they isolate themselves. And then even in solitude, we desire to learn more about the galaxy so that they sent him and 100 or 99 other changeling infants to gain knowledge and to return home. Also 99 luft balloons. Noina, noina, <laughs> changelings. Someone rewrite that too. But I totally... Um, it, I mean, I remember the part about Odo getting sent away, obviously, but not so much the part about this. We know they're very uh, judgmental of the solids, but she says 
that even the word changeling mm. was like a slur that was put upon them that they reclaimed. And uh, this idea that like, well, they were hunted, so they've reacted that way out of this history. So that was interesting. No, I think that was one of the excuses. I keep bringing this show back to Magneto, I know, but I think that's the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants mm. thing. They're like, the human saw it as evil. We took that title and ran with it. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> and she has this motivation that... Between um, that's different than Odo's that's really uh, talked about in that episode about, well, she wants order. Um, and that means exterminating the solids because they're like, they're untidy, they're messy people. <laughs> and um, which we've definitely heard from Odo before. Yeah, but Odo wants justice. So he's like, well, it's not <laughs> right. And she's like, I don't care if it's right. Is it clean? <laughs> the one thing I assumed about the relationship between her and Odo that I kind of saw carry over uh along with the progression is that she has this this chastising mother figure attitude that we see in her a lot um it definitely kind of calls back to the fact that Odo was just raised by this father figure and Dr. Mora who was kind of unaffectionate and uncaring and then he we get that whole uh, what am I trying to say the parallel of finally meeting the long lost mother and she's very much like really these are the choices you've made mm-hmm. this is what you're into disappointed son very disappointed that's what i got out of it anyway yeah i mean and she inflicts the ultimate punishment which is taking away his ability to shapeshift Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's interesting because it is a bit of an oedipus thing then if we're going to look at her as a mother figure oh definitely (laughs) well we have a comment from facebook from tiferet who says, I'm currently mid-season six on DS9, so I just watched some episodes with the female changeling. Mostly I'm confused about her feminism-wise. On the one hand, it looked like her role in the beginning of season six was to be the temptress trope, luring Odo away from Kira and the, quote, good guys. On the other hand, she seemed to genuinely care about Odo and bringing him home, and left when it was apparent he was staying on DS9. So that sort of, it morphs into that mother- Trope. Mm-hmm. It's a multifaceted, un- not great relationship. I think that she really believes so strongly in the support superiority of the Link and the Founders that it is like a failure that she can't handle if Odo chooses not to be with them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can definitely see that. It's creepy. I definitely remember... The whole thing where there's the occupation and Odo's sleeping with or linking with the changeling lady instead of and basically allows Rom to almost get executed because he forgets. <laughs> like you do. I was super mad at both of them. But that's like in a way that goes back to sort of that seductress trope thing where you're supposed to forgive Odo at the end of the day. You're not, I mean, although it takes a while and it takes Kira a while, um, but you are not really expected to forgive the female founder. Because she's taken mm-hmm. advantage of him, don't you know? Um, I also like her scenes with Wayun. Oh, because absolutely. <laughs> Wayun is just like so ingratiating, uh, trying to ingratiate himself with her and uh, she's just so bored with him. He is such a sycophant. Yeah. And she does not even care. And that really makes it, that dynamic really makes both the performances bounce off of each other just so yeah. nicely. It's great. And uh, she has some decent scenes with Ducat and Damar too, around the Dominion War. She's, she's interesting. 
She's a character that makes for a great foil against all of these just intense power-hungry characters. This one character who has a ton of power, but really just wants to win this one person over to her side. Yeah, like at the end of the day, I feel like she would have been okay with a lot more losses as long as it got Odo back. Yeah. Like if she had left Deep Space Nine after the occupation of Deep Space Nine with Odo, but the whole rest of the like alliance with the Cardassians was in tatters, I think she would have been like, that was a win. Well, I got my boy here. At least for now. This is one changeling that the Starfleet cannot have. He is all ours, not yours. Yeah, but she is definitely genocidal. Yeah, which isn't great. Which, I mean, comes, I think, out of the lack for lack of respect for solid life. So she's, but she's a, a powerful figure, and I enjoyed getting to see her. Yeah, would definitely. Have, na- name would have been interesting. Should we, we could just give her a name now. Janice. <laughs> <laughs> Colleen. Mogglethorpe. Barbara. Nodo. <laughs> yeah, let's go <laughs> no, for that no. one. <laughs> All right. Well, we had another comment from Emma also about the female changeling who said, I never got invested in the female changeling, never cared to see her on screen. And I'm wondering now if my younger self was discounting her because she's a woman character who isn't traditionally pretty. Any thoughts on that? It's very possible. Interesting. I think it's interesting that we do see her in this seductress role of kind of trying to tempt Odo away from all this, but she is not a traditionally attractive woman and she is not uh, portrayed in any sexual way. I find that a really interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, she's got kind of like a dumpy pink turtleneck dress. And Odo's haircut. And face. Yeah. Um, It is interesting because it does make her, you know, she's literally called the female changeling. She also clearly has breasts, but she is more androgynous than some of the other women. Which, again, why would they need those? If if you could shapeshift, why would you need mammaries? Um, fun? <laughs> Good answer. Medical reasoning there. Fun. I'll admit it's been a while for me since I've gone all the way through Deep Space Nine, but I remember watching it for the first time. And, you know, you were not, I don't think, like, as a kid, we were necessarily supposed to connect everything as it was was coming out on on tv as odo finds his people yet we're dealing with the dominion and the revelation the first time around that she is the founder and the changelings are the elusive founders of the dominion and she is the one controlling everything and everything we've been fighting against like it was that's a pretty great reveal it was a big deal Yeah. yeah And just her her line of her coming out and going, welcome home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, pretty, it's pretty great. I think would be interesting to explore again uh, in our world today, um, because I know uh, when Iris Stephen Bear was working on this, he has a quote about how the, the search arc where she's introduced is... Um, you know, in the first episode, he says, we're going to go out there and find the enemy and deal with it. Then in the second show, it's going to be, wait a second, when you go looking for the enemy, sometimes you find out that the enemy is you. Instead of being about who's going to beat whom, it's a show about character revelations and a deepening of character and what happens when you find the truth about yourself. How do you deal about 
deal with it. So in some ways, it's kind of like a dark mirror for Odo. And in an interesting way, because it also includes uh, a different gender. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, also possibly a dark mirror for humanity. Sort of like in multiple ways, she's the road not taken for Odo, both in, you know, deep, deep seated ethical choices and gender. But also this whole, you know, what happens when you decide that you and people you think are like you are superior to everyone else. Well, and at the end of the at the whole end of the whole series, she's dying and she's reluctant to let Odo heal her because it means that she didn't win this whole winning him over thing. But then what gets her to change her mind and to agree to end the war is that Odo says he'll go back with them. Yeah. And it's so sad, you guys. It's really freaking (sighs) sad. But like important and shit, I guess. (sighs) Sorry, Kira Odo Shipper here. Okay. Um (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't tell. Okay. Uh, anything else on the female changeling before we move on? Why did she need to have that same hairdo? Why? As important as she is, and how much she drives the story on Deep Space Nine, especially in the later seasons, it is incredibly difficult to find a high-res photo of this Uh, character. Yeah, you know, I think they must not have made publicity shots or something, because, you know, with the, the shows that weren't turned into HD... Um, there's often only the publicity shots that are high res. Yeah, I mean, I went this little bit inside baseball, but obviously as our our heavy hitter of the episode, I went looking for a great photo of her for our show art for this episode, and it was impossible to find one that would look good, even just the size of our show art, which really isn't that big, especially since it's like a a trifold basically for these episodes and i found it really frustrating because she's our main villain and there's there's no good images of her it's frustrating although um i mean i find deep space nine a bit challenging on the the high-res photos regardless yeah so make of it what you will i mean she also (laughs) is one of the people on my list of the women who never got action figures despite being in a lot of episodes or just super important to the plot so have you not seen have you not seen the figure of her? There's no figure of her. There is. It comes in. It comes in a little egg, and it's stretchy. I think they call it silly putty. <laughs> <laughs> Just stick a horrible hairdo on it, and you're good to go. I mean, that was partly to do with the licensing, but it was unfortunate that we lost a lot of good characters because there were licensing issues between like Deep Space Nine season three and the end of Voyager. Bogus. Anywho, Valeris is our next character, and we have talked a little bit about her in our episode eight about uh, women in the classic Trek movies, but I uh, thought we would revisit her in this episode. Valeris, Valeris, Valeris. I named one of my Star Wars characters after her. <laughs> I feel like that makes you like a franchise trader or something in no, some circles. I- <laughs> Both of my Saber Guild characters and my Rebel Legion character are named for Star Trek characters. And my my 501st registry number has 1701 in it. Uh-huh. So I, I troll my own fandoms. Nice. Does does your character have a headband? Um, Sometimes. Does she have a sweet undercut? No. It's a great hairdo for a Vulcan, I gotta say. Uh, so of course we are talking about Valeris, played by Kim Cattrall in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. 
who went to my high school, and that was like my geek claim to fame before I had a Star Trek podcast with you guys. Amazing. Yeah. Canadian. Um, You know, we'll ask the same question we asked about uh, Nona. Is she a villain? Um, Kim Cattrall said in the 1992 issue of Starlog, I tried not to put villain on Valeris. I didn't want her to be the baddie. I wanted her to do it for reasons that she feels are just. Come on. Klingons cannot be trusted. We've known that from day one. So Valeris did what she felt she had to do. That's the way I played it. I feel like this is just another example of how much Kim Cattrall is um, underserved by a lot of the roles that she has, where she's just the sex kitten or the Samantha, which is unfortunate because she really knows how to sink her teeth into a role if you get to see her actually oh, have 100%. one. Oh, 100%. And yeah, she's fabulous. It's also interesting because she didn't want to be the villain, but the reason that Valeris exists is because they didn't want to put this antagonistic role onto Savick. Yeah. Well, they also didn't want her to be played by a third actress, but <laughs> that's another story. That That's getting into defense against the dark arts teacher territory <laughs> there. The role is jinxed, I tell ya. Yeah, well, they could have brought back Robin Curtis, um, but uh, the new director did not want to um, uh, because he had been the one who had originally worked with Kirstie Alley. So politics. But um, Kim Cattrall in that same interview says that she thought the Savick was kind of bland. Um, I'm sure there are some people who would take issue with that. They also talked about making Valeris half Romulan, which never got put in the script, but that was supposed to be supposed to, I guess, explain why she was badder than a logical Vulcan should be. Mm-hmm. Nah, I think it, I think it plays better with her just as straight up Vulcan and Me adds too. more to that idea of a royal rounded villain is one who actually has a cause and you can see where they're coming from. Well, and that it could happen to anyone, that anyone can be exactly, xenophobic yeah. and fearful. Well, and that logic isn't absolute. Mm-hmm. It's still yes. because you're not dealing with just, you know, numbers or equations, then you, there's interpretation there at some point. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. I also like the fact that uh, supposedly the name Valeris comes from Eris, the goddess of chaos. Oh. And I just think that's neat because she's stewing a little chaos via logic here. Love it. A little bit. But um, I mean, back to the point about Kim Cattrall's acting ability. She originally turned the role down because she said that she felt that women were generally portrayed in these kinds of movies as, quote, either leg furniture, real bitches, or basically extras, and you never really felt for them. I wanted more than that, and I thought, I'm not going to do science fiction movies unless they give my character more meat. That makes me sad. But just that she'd have that impression already, that that is the impression for even actors when thinking about a science fiction film. Like, that's upsetting. Way to go, Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, she's not wrong, although I'm sure that some of us would dispute. There are always exceptions. Well, and, yeah. and women fans have made uh, a lo- have spent a lot of time finding meat and adding meat where there wasn't much meat. Yes, <laughs> through fanfic and we really like barbecues. Yeah, <laughs> it's a potluck, really. The fandom is really a potluck for us to all add the meat that we need to see. <laughs> Just not sausages. <laughs> It's enough of a sausage fest already. <laughs> Jara wins the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, how do you feel about Valeris? 
I love the character. I really do think it's cool that we're seeing in her a character that could have really easily been taken in a lot of the directions that Kim Cattrall had concerns about, but we do get an interesting, well-rounded, and surprisingly non-sexualized character. And I think that's awesome. I think this is another one of those times that Star Trek really surprised me. Um, maybe again, because the first time I saw this movie, I was pretty young. But from everything we know about Star Trek, you don't expect your Vulcan to be your devious one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it it got me. They got me the first time around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and she plays that really well, the parts where, you know, she's claiming to have found the real perpetrators. And I really like her the way that she delivers the the eyebrow raise and the sort of... Though I think she should have been smarter about the boots. Yeah. It was funny, but she she should have known better. I think that's great that she is um, a character that we're introduced to. This is our first time seeing her in this movie, but we're... She's interesting. She's a little likable. We are interested in this character, and she doesn't feel tacked on, so that in the end, when we get that reveal, it... It feels like an actual reveal and not just like, oh, this person was the bad, this found your bad guy. This is it. It makes the revelation mean something. She's given a reasonable backstory. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, and that we're told from the start that one of our heroes is in her court and promoting her and pushing her and mentoring her. Yeah. I think also that even though. Uh, so there's a, a couple of antagonists in this movie, and I would say that she's not as uh, over the top as General Chang, but I don't think it's, you know, I'll just compare it briefly to to Generations, where Lursa and Batora are just kind of weird <laughs> comic relief. Mm. Um, I think that she at least gets... They get some delicious scenery to chew. Yeah, but I think that Valeris gets a little bit, she's a little bit more um, uh, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. She's more of a threat. The role's a little meteor. Agreed. Yeah. Like a little meteor is a tiny asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> For a full definition on the differences between asteroids and meteoroids, look to the works of Joanna Newsome. <laughs> um, but before we uh, wrap up Valeris, we of course would be remiss if we did not talk uh, about the uh, a scene where she is telepathically mind-meld assaulted by Spock. <sighs> Yeah, that's not okay. It does not feel like something Spock would do. And that bigger than the reveal of Valeris having been on this on this chaotic path of uh, botching these peace treaties, that feels like the big betrayal of the movie right there. Mind melts frustrate me so much because we're told over and over again that they're so personal and so rare and so private and so intimate. And yet they happen all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. And then the person who tells us these things about how personal and private and whatever they are, like, invades that privacy to someone who trusted him, like, to to his mentee on the bridge of a starship with everyone watching. And, I mean, we, we talked about this in the last episode because some people, you know, argue, okay, well, it wasn't really assault because it's a mind meld um or you know i don't think more common for people to think 
they'd never thought of it before or that it's justified because Spock needed to find this information out. But, like, she literally says no and yeah. is clearly in pain. So, you know, she wasn't consenting and then she verbally said it as well as we know that people can tell that if they're in their mind. Vulcans should be able to tell that it wasn't a consenting mind melt. Mm-hmm. It's a very clearly a violation. It also didn't seem super justified, but um, we did no. we did talk about that in more detail in the the classic Trek movies episode. So check that out if you want to have a deeper dive into that topic. But I, I think it was pretty unfortunate for what was otherwise. Um, I really enjoyed watching Valeris. That episode would be called "The Undiscovered Women." Yes, because there aren't many. Okay, well. Um, we have two more to knock out here. The first one is Janice Lester from original series Turnabout Intruder. So we've gone back to the beginning of uh, back to the 60s and we are looking at Kirk's old flame who switches bodies with him because she's not allowed to be a captain. Insert that gif of Ter- Teresa Giudice flipping a table from the Real Housewives of New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. That is my reaction to this episode. This episode is a painful watch. Erin on Facebook said, Lester feels like a 1960s caricature of the bitter businesswoman who does all the legwork for the company and continually gets passed over for a promotion so many times until she completely snaps, though she's only clever in the design of her plans and not the execution. What's extra annoying about it is that they're talking about how they're like, no, and the reason it didn't work out as a relationship between us is you were too insecure about being a woman? What the actual what hell? Is- Man, we did. Okay, so we talked about Janice Lester a bit in the Kirk's Love Interest episode as well, uh, in which I, I definitely remember Andy talking about the whole red-faced and hysterical thing. That Not a phrase you hear uh, given to a lot of guys. Yeah, they can tell, they basically start to tell something's wrong with Kirk because he starts seeming, quote, hysterical. Jim, you're acting very vagina-y today. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that's basically where the word comes from. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, she has a breakdown at the end and... Breakdown or hissy fit? I don't know. I mean, she's, like, sobbing. Yeah. Yeah, that that is pretty great, though. The, I love you for who you are. Kill him! <laughs> that's kind of the high point of the episode for me. Just, I don't care if you love me, just kill him! What was the part you were talking about, Grace, where she says that, like, she it would be better to be dead? Yeah, somewhere along at the beginning when Janice in the body of Kirk is doing the villain monologue thing before being about to strangle her is just like, no, dying in this body. It would be better to be dead than to maintain the indignities of being a woman. And it's just like, holy hell. Now you know the indignity of being a woman. Yeah. For you, this agony will soon pass as it has for me. Quiet, quiet. Believe me, it's better to be dead than to live alone in the body of a woman. It's better to be dead. But what does Kirk think should have happened at the end? She should have just dealt with all of these societal expectations that we put on women. You know, like a grown-up. The, the Well, the last thing Kirk says, her life could have been as rich as any woman's, if only. If only. If only... There are multiple insinuations there that are not good if only she'd stayed in her place if only she'd been a secretary if only she weren't so hysterical and emotional also women's lives can only be so fulfilling 
It yeah. couldn't be as fulfilling as a man's, but she could have had a life as fulfilling as any woman. Yeah. I'm going to go flip another table. Yeah. So in These Are the Voyages, there is a quote by Jean Roddenberry in the, a section of the, the chapter that talks about whether or not this episode is, is sexist. And um, he said, nowhere in my story was the statement made that this woman wasn't qualified to command because of her gender. And sorry, I'll just pause for a second to say, I don't know if that means in because he wrote the original script, but he didn't write the final script. So it's possible he said that got added in because it's definitely there that I wasn't couldn't be a command because I was a woman. That has also been like sort of retconned. Yes. Into like that's yeah. just quote in her head. Yeah. Which is has its own set of problems. Well, and so then he went on to say she lacked the qualifications on a personal level and she also happened to be emotionally unstable. In her mind, sure, she was being discriminated against. And that could have been another theme in this story, how we can limit ourselves because of our own belief that we will be discriminated against. It can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. That would have a little more meaning if it wasn't someone who's, you know, part of a group that's regularly discriminated against on a casual basis. Yeah. Yeah, The exact line she says is, your world of starship captains doesn't admit women. Yeah. So, I mean, I certainly didn't understand it as it's all in her head. But even if it is that, um, I think it's a really problematic idea that, you know, that somehow women... Um, you know, then, but also now, would be, like, setting themselves up for failure by their own belief that they might be discriminated against. She's scapegoating her own gender. Yeah. And that just adds so much to this uh, false idea that men are in more higher positions because men are just more qualified. Yeah. They're just more confident. Women are the reason women don't have what they want. Yeah. It's kind of a cop-out. It is a massive cop-out. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are, like, nuanced discussions to be had about representation in boardrooms and political power, but it's, um, you know, should not be the ones who have the most power deciding, like, hey, no, discrimination isn't a thing. But if it makes you feel better, the original ending that he wrote for this story uh, had Kirk on the bridge because he's maintained some sort of feminine characteristics and he's insecure about that and McCoy is reassuring him like don't worry that'll go away and Spock says it's illogical to be concerned but then quote a very pretty young female yeoman enters for duty Kirk looks her over for a long moment very approvingly and then he realizes he doesn't feel insecure anymore about his masculinity ew so the ending could have been worse (laughs) I guess and it's just so disappointing this is the last TOS episode, but yeah. that was not obviously the intention. Either way, what a what an inauspicious way to go out. I do think that Sandra Smith does a really good acting job in this episode, as well as William Shatner. Um, uh-huh. They're relying a bit on stereotypes, but still, you can feel that someone else is in their body, so that's kind of cool. But I don't really have a lot positive to say about this character. It's kind of just... She has uh, just an intense case of hysterical woman syndrome. Yeah, basically. So to conclude our part two of this episode, we're going to talk about the sphere builders who are the transdimensional beings in in uh, Enterprise who build these z- spheres that the Zindi use against Earth. And we see four of them, I believe, that have sort of roles and lines in the series, and three of them are women. 
the other one is the, the test subject, who's played by a man and sort of presents as male, but the other three are played by women and present as female. So yeah, thoughts on thoughts on these folks? This storyline is so convoluted. It is ridiculously convoluted. Like, they're trying to do a big, epic storytelling event over the course of at least a season, and it just, it gets so ham-fisted and confusing. There are so many points where, watching through it even for the first time, I just had to stop and be like, what the hell is happening here? I had to have, <laughs> I had to have memory alpha open just to keep track of what the hell was happening. Stylistically, visually... I felt a little bit like they were trying to to channel the founders yeah, again. Yeah, I agree. Um, they call them names like the Guardians and the Makers, and they have this weird, like, trans-dimensional plane where they kind of talk to each other, but sometimes they telepathically talk to each other. It looks like where the prophets hang out. Yeah, they. It, it's just white. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's not even a set. They're just in a hallway somewhere i don't know <laughs> guys we're out of budget what do we do <laughs> but uh, like astral communication you're definitely supposed to be getting the impression that they are controlling or at least attempting to control everything that's going on here so they're supposed to be seen as incredibly powerful I'm but not it, it just doesn't really work out well for them mm-hmm yeah, they're, I mean, and like the founders, they also don't have names. So the main one that we see is called in the script, the Sphere Builder Woman or the Woman. And I think we're supposed to think they're above names. I mean, I guess the woman is better than how in the DS9 scripts, it just says female. Yeah. Female. Ah. So the woman is the primary contact with the Zindi. She's played by Josette DiCarlo. Uh, she's the one who promises the reptilians that they'll be dominant if they deploy the weapon. I've heard that one before. Then we also have the saboteur, who is one of the women who tries to sabotage the Enterprise in Zero Hour. And um, how, do, how do you say it? Is it presage? Presage, according to Google. Okay. And she's supposed to be the sphere builder woman, the woman's superior, who is the one who really coordinated the builder's efforts to have the Zindi reptilians use the weapon because they want to invade our space. But in order to do that, they need to make the space habitable for them. So they need to destroy Earth and stuff. Oh, no, they're personal space invaders. Yeah. <laughs> Before I started rewatching this Enterprise for... The, the 50th anniversary in that year. And of course, for our episodes, I forgot that this whole storyline happened. Yeah. The temporal <laughs> war, the, like, I for, I honestly forgot every little bit of it. There's just so much unnecessary story put into the whole thing. It's like, Earth is being, or Earth could be destroyed. It's like, okay. It's like, Earth could be destroyed because these people are at war with these people and we got caught. And it's like, I didn't ask for your life story. I asked for vague character motivation. I just remembered, like, the big swath of Florida that was lasered away. Because they wanted to have some kind of 9-11 allegory in there? Yeah. I I did like that they're, again, sort of seen like, as deities. I think that that is something that, um, where the idea of um, feminine deities is not super um, common in our 
current society. So the mm-hmm. idea that these women aliens are revered by like these super badass reptilian dudes was kind of cool. Um, also kind of very Star Trekky that they turn out to be false gods. Very mm-hmm. Star Trekky. I just think there was missed potential because transdimensional aliens trying to do something that's cool, but we had so little time with them that you don't even feel like you got to know the difference between them or, and their motives were self-preservation sort of, but also just, we want to rule the whole galaxy and no one, I don't know. I don't really understand why. We spent most of our time with them going, wait, what? I think, both the prophets and the founders worked better than the sphere builders. And what did they do other than build the spheres? Take up time. I mean, they, they spend a lot of time looking and finding out what's going on in the future and the past and trying to see the future and whether they're going to succeed or not. But surely they have they have to have a society with people who do things. Maybe? Do they just Maybe. float around and talk? Mm-hmm. In transdimensional space? Maybe they're the precursor to the Q continuum. Hmm. Well, you know, Enterprise didn't have a ton of, to offer us in terms of women villains. So um, so I think we covered them now that we've done Terra and the Sphere Builders. But if we missed some for our next episode, you can feel free to drop us a line. We do know that we have some significant ones left to cover. Well, if you consider, if you consider Empress Sato a villain, you can listen to us talk about her in episode 77, the one right before this one. Yeah. yeah. Or in our Mirror Universe episode, we also talk about Empress Sato. That, I think, is it for us today. We know that we have some significant ones left to cover in part three, so stay tuned for that. We will be talking about the Borg Queen, Sylvia from Cat's Paw, Kara from Spock's Brain, Lenore Caridian from Conscious of the King, Martia from Star Trek VI, Admiral Satie from TNG's The Drum- Drumhead, and a new one- Spoiler! 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 A new one from Discovery- you can just end the episode now if you haven't watched it yet. The we'll be talking about Emperor Georgiou. <laughs> yeah, so um that will be a little ways from now. Um, but uh but fear not. And if there are other ones that we've missed, uh drop us a line. Uh you can get in touch with our show at crew at women at warp.com or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash women at warp, Twitter at women at warp, on our website women at warp.com. Or pretty much uh, any other way that you can think of. Um, also, you could try uh, whispering in the ear of humpback whale and then waiting for the 24th century and when the probe comes and then the probe will want to find the humpback whales and uh, <laughs> the humpback whales won't be there. So then Kirk will have to go back. And when Spock mind melds with humpback whales, they'll say, hey, tell women at warp X. So that's another way to get a hold of that us. That plan is almost convoluted enough to be on Enterprise. And then and then a Western Union man will show up outside of our town and hand us a letter from <laughs> Doc Brown. But Jara, where can people find you on the internet? Right. I'm Jara. You can find me on Twitter at Jara Penguin or on Tumblr, trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. What about you, Grace? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank or in the ether of your dreams. And Sue? You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. Thanks so much for listening. 